This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Here in Parsha Slach, this Parsha tells the story of the Maraglim the spies. It's a very, very important central uh, story in this chronicle of the years in the desert, um, and an extremely important one in the history because uh, because of this episode, um, the majority of the Jewish people is not allowed to. Uh, Continue into to see the Holy Land, you know, see to to, to enter at Israel, and they had to die out over uh, forty years in the desert until they finally the new generation was able to pass over. So it's pretty um, pretty critical thing. And then we have some uh, important mitzvahs in the parsha, and then one of the target mitzvahs that I really want to focus on. Actually, two is from the parsha of Tzitzis. It's the mitzvah of of, of, uh, of um, putting the confos, putting the the, uh, the fringes, as they're called, um, onto the four corners of, of a four-cornered bigot garment. And also, there is the um, mitzvah in the same parsha of Loisa Siri. It should not uh, follow uh, your eyes and heart, or that the eyes should not follow the heart, or you know various different interpretations of that statement. But that is also one of the mitzvahs, various different facets. And it's kind of a unique mitzvah because it's talking um, more about, um, in a general way, about how we relate to our eyes and our hearts, <laughs> and the information that's provided by them. Feelings and perceptions and observations. How do we how do we handle that in our lives? Uh, and also, it's it's this. Um, and how how does this relate to the uh, the parsha Noragul? Is there a correlation between the two that we should learn from? So, let's dive into it. Uh, first of all, the parsha of Tzitzis is an extremely important parsha. I don't know how much time there is to go into it in depth, um, the mitzvah itself, but it is an extremely important mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that is uh, very much emphasized uh, by those that write about these things um, because it's a, it, it includes so much. It's, um, it's so symbolic um, that the... Um, the uh, implications of it are extremely important. First of all, it, first thing to realize is that it involves the subject of perception. The word "sitzis" itself means to look to you know to look at something. It involves sight, and the other aspect of it is the concept of a garment and what a garment is and what it means. And also the fact that it is on the four corners of that garment, meaning it it um, it encompasses the garment. I mean, it, it surrounds it from all sides. Even though they're just strings that hang on the, on the corners, but it's because it, it's on four corners, it, it includes the entire 
uh, garment, and the garment is supposed to cover uh, the the majority of the person's uh, back, so or you know, torso, whatever. So um, it's obviously an idea of something being enveloped in something else. Like you know, if you take the talisgutten, <clears throat> it can be relatively small, but <clears throat> the talisgutl is a large garment which really covers the body, including the head. So that's, uh, again, this concept of enveloping. And enveloping is something that is related to what we call a makif or a makif. There's a light, an encompassing light, which surrounds uh, the entire bria, the entire creation. <clears throat> and something that, that envelops something is both a protection and also a way of unifying everything that it it covers over by by surrounding something from all sides. It's considered to unify that into one element because if you look at it from the outside, then you see only one thing. You see, you know, uh, something that's you don't even see the individual parts of the body. You see just the the, the body itself as an entity. It's one entity, one single entity. So that's got it's got both of these qualities to it. <clears throat> And then there's all kinds of symbolism in the numbers involved. Um, the fact that they, we, we, you know, we break it down to each um, each of these four uh, fringes itself has eight strings, and it also has five knots. And then there is a spiral. Um, the the, the uh, the threads are wound, or the one main thread, let's say, uh, is wound around uh, each of the sections between the knots in, in a certain pattern of, of uh, windings. Uh, the first one is seven, then eight, then 11, then 13. And those add up to a certain number, and then some go even further to make what's called chulius, uh, uh, an additional... Um, winding to go around to 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 go around different numbers of threads within each section, so it's really pretty elaborate. Uh, and then there's the concept of the, the psil techelis, which some not everyone is is uh, is knowing to do today, but that's the um, the dye uh, giving a blue color from the fish called halazin, which is kind of controversial exactly what fish that is, but there are those that that. Uh, Hold that they that they figured it out and they do wear tchelis today and other ones don't. But in either case, it's not ma'ak. It's not something that you can't do the bits unless you have the tchelis unless you have the uh, the pistol tchelis. Anyway, and then we have the drusha, the famous drusha that the tchelis is that there's kind of a, a string, a, a sequence of associations that when you look at the tchelis, because again the whole mitzvah of it is is to look at the tzitzis. That's why. Um, the, the, there is no mitzvah of, of tzitzis at night um, because it has to be visible during the day there's a time of, when, it's, when it's light so you can look at it and um, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, also because of the fact that only during a mitzvah during the day then it becomes mitzvah it's a time oriented mitzvah which then women uh, are put from they're not, not required to uh, to uh, observe that mitzvah, a few women in history that did, but you know, generally speaking, they don't. And um, and then there's the whole question of you know whether if there is um, an obligation to wear tzitzis, uh, 
even if you don't wear a four-cornered garment. In other words, the, the mitzvah is specifically if you have a four-cornered garment, then you have to put on the tzitzis. But if you don't have a four-cornered garment, then you're not required to put on a special four-cornered garment just in order to be makal, to, to, to uh, be kind of the mitzvah. But today, because of the tremendous uh, uh, significance of the mitzvah, we, we do encourage that. You know, it's, it's, uh, generally, people do put on tzitzis unless they have a particular reason not to uh, in certain circumstances, but basically it's a very important mitzvah. It's, it's something that again encompasses all of mitzvahs. The, the gematria uh, numerical equivalent of the word tzitzis is, adds up to 600 and then together with the eight strings of the five uh, five knots is 613 which of course is a reference to entire mitzvahs and the whole thing is that and this is the important point that we want to bring out here is that you have to look at the mitzvahs in order to remember. It's a, it's a reminder specifically of all of these these uh, um, uh, illusions. Another one is the concept that because we say uh, the kanfe big dam, the idea of a kanafaim, that the word that's used for these um, corners is is wings. So that is taken to be a reference to the Merkava, the the, uh, the angels that um, and, and the the Brias that inhabited the you know, higher worlds, the concept of the holy chariot, and, and uh, uh, what that means, and then the fact that we wear it makes us comparable to the holy chariot, you know, in the Shemaim and and and, and, the, and like you said, COVID, um on high, and that we are fulfilling that role down here. It's, it's a tremendous, tremendous number of amount, amount of symbolism, and by putting on the tzitzis to, you know, to to in a, in a visible way, um, has a tremendous power to it, and it, it helps us remember our role, and it helps us uh, to to visualize all these different uh, aspects that you know that, that make us make our whole role so special. In any case. Um, what I want to emphasize here is that in terms of all these illusions and all this symbolism and all the meaning that we can draw from simply looking at the tzitzis, none of these things are self-evident. In other words, if you'd show a non-Jew, you know, tzitzis and ask him what this means, um, they wouldn't be able to tell you, obviously. Uh, it's a very cute story about an old friend of mine from years and years ago, the Balchua that um, lived in Crown Heights, and he um, wouldn't mind me saying his name. It was on the stern. I haven't seen him for many years. Anyway, so he um, he was a fresh Balchuva, and he um, was going in the New York subways. Ended up in a very rough neighborhood by mistake. He got out at the wrong stop or whatever. And Crown Heights itself was pretty rough in those days. Uh, but uh, uh, there he went to. It's surrounded by even rougher neighborhoods. So he got out at one, and he was um, he got out for some reason. Of, uh, at the station, and started walking, you know, down a dark alley or something, and he was met by um, by a few muggers. Uh, I hope I'm getting this over, over properly because I haven't heard it for many years, although I think it's written down. Um, and he was um, he was uh, he had his, his tzitzis. I believe they were in his pockets. A lot of people wear their tzitzis in the pockets. So this, um, these, these buggers wanted to, uh, obviously, he should, you know, hand over whatever he has for, for some reason. I don't know if he told them that he couldn't, but yeah, I really, after review of the mice, I, I don't remember every, every detail. But in, in any case, what happened was the, um, 
the uh, uh, muggers got rather frustrated and they decided to look into his pockets themselves and he put this guy put his hand into his pocket and the pocket and his hands his fingers got stuck in the tzitzis and like you know he was he was he never encountered that before and it was like you know he couldn't, couldn't get his hand out or whatever we didn't know what this was and he was you know very frustrated and threatening him you know and this and that so finally he says what, what is this thing and uh, he started to explain the uh, the significance of the tzitzis. I don't remember again exactly how it turned out, but in any case, this this uh, these these mothers were so impressed in the end by his explanation of what the, the meaning of the tzitzis that they uh, personally accompanied him, accompanied him back to the uh, taking him back on the train. Nothing should happen to him, and uh, you know, and bid him. You know, farewell. Uh, you know, friendly farewell. It was. It's like turned around the whole thing. Anyway, in any case, it's just to show you that the, that this is obviously unintelligible to a person who doesn't know what they mean. So, what does that mean? It means that that according to our education, this is really the point I want to emphasize here. According to one's education, the chinuch, how he was raised, how he was trained, that is determines how he looks at the world. If a person is uh, educated that everything in the world comes from Hashem. Hashem created everything for a purpose, and it's all uh, how it's, there's a, there's a, a unity and a uh, cross-referencing between the spiritual world and the physical world. So everything in the physical world represents something in the spiritual world, uh, and therefore it can even be manipulated by the way that we handle things in the physical world. So the more we can make those connections, the more that we understand those connections, the richer our experience of the physical world is because we understand its spiritual significance. And and the mitzvahs themselves being based on that connection. Uh, we appreciate the mitzvahs themselves oh, that much more also. As, uh, the mitzvahs is, is perhaps one of the best examples of that. I mean, why do we do this? And why does it look this way? Only because of these symbolic references. It's not that arbitrarily we decided on, on you know, eight strands and, uh, and, and five knots and, and, and uh, all these different chulias uh, with, 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 with uh, you know, uh, windings and spirals and all this stuff. What does it mean? You know, what, what is it there for? It's obviously there to represent something. And everything that we do in Yitzchakite is is that way. And the more we look into the reasons for the mitzvahs as we're trying to do in these uh, these podcasts, and and the more we uh, look into the deeper meanings of things, the more we appreciate that, and it, it changes our lives. Our lives become a different type of experience because of the way we perceive the the environment is dependent on the way we've been trained to look at it. So it comes out that. The way that our minds work and the way that our attitudes are formed and the way that we've been taught to respond to the world, which becomes not only an intellectual thing but also an emotional thing, something that's embedded in our hearts as well as our minds, then that influences the way our eyes perceive things. And this is very, very obvious. I mean, a simple example of Hashkalcha of, Protis. Uh, of, of the idea of you know divine intervention, divine uh, divine providence. If uh, uh, there uh, people, I mean, this is like you know Every every day we see examples of this. A person, a religious person, who sees a connection between events, or you know that, that interprets uh, the, the coincidence 
of events to be an indication of God's involvement and, and his showing himself to us in, in our lives. And then you'd show those same kinds of events to a person who doesn't believe in the concept of divine providence, and he'll pass it off as a coincidence. Notice I said coincidence, and coincidence is, is, is the same word, but coincidence means that things are, are intentionally caused to coincide so that we make a certain connection, and the coincidence is just something that happens randomly, you know, without any reason at all. So this is, it's, we're looking at the same events in the world, but we're interpreting them totally different, and uh, differently. And, and the way that we interpret it is either a chizik, it's, it either strengthens our, our belief in Hashem, or it, it uh, doesn't have any effect at all, because we just see everything as being random. So it's, it's, a, it's a question of how we're taught to look at the world. And I, I can't emphasize this enough because going even deeper in a sense, in, in, a, in a broader scale, the main challenge that religion, any religion really, faces in the world today is that <clears throat> unlike in years past, the Jewish religion in particular, for example, um, the biggest challenge that we faced uh, in terms of our enemies trying to destroy us or whatever was uh, things like forced conversion. Where in what was forced conversion, the other faiths, which were also based on the concept of faith uh, and, and belief as the basis for an ideology or a belief system, um, which religions basically are, um, was based on the concept that knowledge and wisdom is derived from receiving a tradition from previous generations, and many, in many cases thousands of years, uh, that, that these, these traditions have come down to, to us from a divine source, and that's the basis for our knowledge and our actions. Whereas um, in the last uh, just few centuries, and basically I would say the 20th century more than anything else, um, the things shifted around where because of the growth of universities and uh, so-called you know, secular education and the sciences and all this kind of thing, we were faced with a totally different concept of the basis for knowledge. Um, and because of the success of science in certain specific areas, you know, limited areas, but certain specific areas, um, it was taken to be, uh, you know, by those that, that uh, uh, were looking for a way of justifying uh, anti-religious uh, behavior and religious uh, sentiments of Derek Clow, in general, they uh, developed a whole empirical reasoning system, a belief in the power of empirical um, thinking, which is based on, on observation-based knowledge. That was the only way that you can um, that you can know anything about anything is to to test it and observe the results. So if you can observe, observe results that prove the thing, then you know it's true. But if you don't, if you can't, um, if, if, if they disprove it, then you know it's false. And if you can't test it because it's something that's not testable like all spiritual things, then we'll never know. You know, is it something that can't be proven? So the, the implication is that because we can't prove it, and this is, you know, it's not a true implication, it doesn't really mean that, but people interpret it to mean that, that because we can't prove it, therefore, we don't know if it's true or not. I mean, it could very well be false. Um, and the concept of, of uh, information and knowledge and wisdom and things being passed on from, 
from generations and generations, you know, from an original revelation that took place, you know, thousands of years ago, this has absolutely no validity for such thinking because it can't be proven, it can't be tested, it's not something that we can know. So therefore, it's just like, uh, you know, anybody's guess and it's not uh, reliable in any way. So because of that kind of thinking, we start to believe in the power of our own observation and our interpretation of that observation, which is really key. The fact that we look at something and and um, take down results, you know, we were able to document certain results. First of all, that itself is problematic because the way that we design the experiments is very has a lot to do with you know the kind of results that they produce, and but even more so, the way we interpret those results is can, is, is very problematic because people are not machines. And people have all kinds of biases and previous beliefs and assumptions and axioms and all kinds of things that, in, that, that either you know, get in the way or color or, or influence the way we look at the data that we are presented with to the point of very, very often excluding data which doesn't fit with our previous uh, with our, with our uh, previous conceptions um, based, based on, on our own biases and our own uh, uh, not only biases in terms of the way we think but biases in terms of the way that we want the results to come out in order to justify certain things for example, you know, most uh, most expensive um, studies are being sponsored by somebody, usually by some kind of, uh, you know, uh, interest, either interest group or uh, you know, or some kind of uh, um, businesses and that kind of thing that are out to get to, to to bolster their product or whatever they're selling, whatever, in order to uh, you know, so they want to, they want to show certain results. So you can either you can filter the results, you can skew the results in certain ways, you can interpret the results in certain ways that you want to, um, based on who you're trying to please and what kind of results you're trying to get. Which is the whole reason why I did the result, the the, the, uh, the experiment to begin with. So these things, so in the in the search for so-called objectivity, which is this idea, this ideal that we're looking for some kind of uh, objective reality that nobody can dispute. Everybody has to agree that that's the way it is. We end up saying that uh, I'll, uh, just recently talking about the science, as if science itself is monolithic in, in, in the kinds of things that it, hold, it holds to be true. Whereas really there's all kinds of disagreement between scientists on all levels about what's really going on. Uh, so they, by talking about the science, they ignore that. But then they even talk about it as if, it's, as if there's only one possible conclusion that you can come up with when you interpret the data, which is also not true. And then they, they discount the fact that scientists are human beings with their own interests at, at, at heart as well, as well, and they can corrupt uh, even the findings that they do make them might even be valid, and then they corrupt them or they, they make them, uh, they interpret them to say something which they don't say at all. Um, there is, besides the whole COVID MISA, where we saw very blatantly that uh, we're not even talking about vaccines, but talking about the, the fact that in the interest of pushing the vaccines, uh, scientists ignored and, uh, and, and corrupted all kinds of data uh, resort, uh, 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 relating to other uh, types of treatment that was shown by many studies to be valid and then other studies tried to invalidate th- that th- those studies and you saw the total you know uh, hefker the whole the whole uh, confusion and the the lack of solidarity and lack of of uh 
of intelligibility of much of what was going on uh, during those couple of years where they were trying to find solutions and they were ignoring solutions which caused probably the deaths of thousands of people. And it only only remains to be seen, you know, how how damaging, uh, how much damage was done by this supposed uh, uh, need to be scientific about things. Okay, so that's that's that that's that, but that's you know that's controversial. So I don't want to get into that so much. But there's a, there's a, a very good example of something which has tremendous implications and has been studied by scientists, and still the scientific community refuses to acknowledge this fact. Uh, no matter how much scientific information we have to support it, simply because they have a bias against the idea of it. And that is in the area of, non, of, of uh, near-death experiences. Now, I'm not even talking here about the fact that thousands of people have had this experience that was a life-changing experience for many, many of them, and, uh, and, and they all saw you know, very similar things. So they found various ways scientifically, supposedly, of, 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 of explaining that away, that it was some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of a, a, um, illusion or uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and they wanted you know, uh, to so-called debunk it because of that. But there, is a, uh, there are hundreds of cases that have been documented where a person has an out-of-body experience and their soul, which is the only way you can, I think you can call it, is floating to another uh, location, another area, another room, another something, and they saw something there, which their body was usually dead already in a different place. And they are clinically dead in another place. And they, this, this, they were able to, to, to report afterwards on having saw something that they would never have been able to know about. And then it was independently confirmed that that observation was true. So, and this is, this is hundreds of, of, of examples of this, not thousands, of examples of this where people reported on knowledge, knowing of things that happened that they should not have known. And yet they knew them. And how did they know them? So not only does science have no explanation, they just ignore this, and they have no explanation for how this could be true, but, and they have no alternative uh, explanation for how it could possibly happen. But they refuse to, 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 to admit it because they refuse to admit the implication of it. And what's the implication of it? Obviously, that there is something called a soul. There's something that, uh, that, that um, is, is as a, the, the ability to, have, to get sensual information, in terms of influence, uh, to get information and, uh, observed through the senses when the senses aren't working. The senses are simply not operating. And, uh, and they're able to, 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 to hear and to see and all these kinds of things of, of stuff that they, that they should not be able to, um, they should not be able to do that if it's true that the only way that we get sensual information is through the, sense, the physical senses. Obviously, there's some kind of a non-physical or paranormal whatever uh, thing going on here that, uh, that has to be dealt with. But again, because very often scientists will reject data if they cannot figure out the mechanism of how that data is acquired. And it's a basic flaw in science as a whole, and it's a basic flaw in, in the concept that people can be unbiased, that, that, that you can depend on scientists to be unbiased.
It's, it's, simply, it's, a, it's simply a flaw. It's a flaw in the entire concept of science. Uh, aside from the fact that science has so many things that they cannot reliably uh, investigate at all, and they can't even provide any kind of answer at all on very crucial questions because they have no basis on which to, to give an opinion. But uh, aside from all of that, I'm saying, you know, in those specific areas where science is, is accomplishing something, good. But the, the problem is that people can't make distinctions. They don't see when you can rely on scientists and when you can't. When there are, you know, very big stakes of people uh, being able to, to make or lose billions of dollars based on a certain, the, the, the findings of a certain study, the pressure on the, on the scientists to come who they're employing or who stand themselves to benefit from the from the, the, the results of those of those studies are so great that they override any uh, supposed impartiality of and even through even you go through the the uh, peer reviewed reports and all that stuff which is also a limitation because many times people get have, have, have uh, uh, case studies and all kinds of things that are perfectly valid in terms of, of, of scientific information and then they say well you can't um, you you can't uh, submit such a paper. Um, because it's not peer-reviewed or because it's not um, double-blind, uh, a massive study of something which costs you know, too much money for the people who are doing it. There's all kinds of stuff that's never investigated or it's investigated you know, in, in spurious ways. There's, there's, there's cases of, of, of fraudulent uh, data being, being offered altogether. Just, it's, it's not reliable, okay? That's just the bottom line. Anyway, what does that have to do with what we're talking here? So we're saying, first of all, this concept in the tzitzis that you're saying that the that it's that so what we're saying is that the levavchem is your assumptions the einechem is your observation so don't allow your own prior um, uh, assumptions to to or, or don't let's say let's say like this don't assume that your prior assumptions are not going to influence your observation. The two are linked, inextricably linked. So on the other hand, you can't go according to, or actually it's a, it's, it's a corollary of that. Therefore, when you have observations that contradict your belief system, you can't assume that you're going to be able to interpret those those um, those observations through your own heart, because your own heart is also biased. So you're going to look at them from from your own perspective, and unless that perspective is, let's say, a Torah perspective, you're 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 using your your education in the Torah to interpret that you know, that that uh, that observation. You can't rely on it because you can't rely on yourself to come up with an impar- impartial judgment on that. Um, that uh, uh, information based on your own, uh, your, based on, on your own independent thinking. It has to be interpreted in the light of what Torah tells us about that thing. Okay, so having established that, we look back at the uh, what happened by the uh, the miraculum. What happened with the miraculum was that the spies were chosen to go and 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 uh, and spy the land, spy out the land, see what's going on over there. The reason why they were sent had nothing to do with a decision of whether to go or not. That decision was always was already made. Hashem decided you're going into the land. It was no, it was quite inequivocal. That was there was no doubt or, or uh, you know 
question, does Hashem want us to go or not? And it was never the question, does Hashem want us to go or not? The only question was how? You know, is, what's the best way? Well, how do we make a strategy? You know, it's, it's a normal thing to go and spy out the place that you're going to attack to know, you know, what's the best way of doing it and, and where the weak points are and things like that, what the strong points are. And that's exactly what Moshe Benin told him to do. Go, spy it out, see who's living where, what's, what's the, uh, you know, uh, how strong they are, this and that, in, in the idea of how can we defeat them, but not in the idea that we have a choice whether to go or not. And then these 10 spies decided that, well, on the basis, and there are various explanations why they, they took this on themselves, that, look, we can, on the basis of the information that we bring back, and of our observations, we can actually recommend whether to go or not. And they came back, for whatever reason, with a recommendation not to go. Because they're saying, well, it's just, you know, all the reasons that they gave. It's, it's, uh, that they saw people dying, so therefore it means that it's, 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 uh, impossible to, uh, to live there. There are giants there. They basically came down to the idea that we'll never be able to defeat the people that are living there now. Uh, it may be a great land in itself, but for us, it's impossible, so forget it. You know, we're just, we're just not going to make it. And then the people, you know, took that to heart and said, okay, look, we believe, we believe you. You know, you know what you're talking about. And no matter what Kalev and Shia said to the contrary, which is from what they said, we see what the proper, you know, attitude should have been, what, the, what, what Moshe Vayner was maybe looking for that they should do is, is to look at how amazing this land is and how it's, it's so, uh, you know, we say, uh, you know, the, 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 it's a supernatural virtually in the, in the kinds of fruits that, that it's growing and, and it's, just, it's, it's amazing bounty and, and power in, in the land itself. And Hashem has decided to give this land to us, you know, how lucky we are. And, and Hashem has guaranteed us that we're going to get it. So there's really no question there. But they were talking both on the idea that, that the question is, I mean, they had numerous questions. First of all, if, if we deserve it, uh, if we're strong enough ourselves to do it, if Hashem really loves us enough to that he should do it for us, despite our, our being so weak and powerless, um, because it's such low self-esteem. So all of these things were contradicting the idea that um, that we should indeed uh, be able to inherit the land. So again, they were allowing their perception and their observations to override the instruction and the and, and the uh, the attitude that they were expected to have. Yeshua and Kalev were not. They were looking for the positive, and they were looking at, at, you know, okay, we have our mission here. We know what we're supposed to be doing. That's not the question. The question is, what can we get out of it? Why? What, what are we going there for? And we're going there to realize that this is a tremendous opportunity, and we should be get very excited about, you know, how, how amazing this is. This, uh, it's like, you know, you go, you go to a person, you say that that I mean, if a person is looking to buy a house, so they don't know if they're good, they, they want to sell their house first and then buy a house, and they don't know if the house we're going to be getting is going to be better than the one that we're selling. So you know, who says that that's going to be that's going to be a good decision? But if we hear from the realtor that this is a fantastic house to sell for sale, and you know this is a really great house, and uh, you know you can afford it, so that's very reassuring, and that's something we can you know now we know we have the strength to go and sell our house because we know there's something right away that we can buy that's going to be even better. 
So a similar situation here, you know, here they are in the middle of the Midbar, and there is a total unknown of what's going on, and this is going to give them the confidence to go, you know, and Hashem is behind us, and uh, there's no question. But again, because the Meraglim, the spies, want to rely on their own perception and their own uh, uh, conclusions about uh, whether it's possible for us to, to pull this off or not, when really it had nothing to do with them. Hashem was going to pull it off. They weren't supposed to pull it off. It wasn't, it wasn't dependent. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, linked to how much power they had. It was, it was all linked to the power of Hashem. So it comes out that if you're going to say that we can't do it, as Rashi says, they were really questioning Hashem's power to do it. Which is, uh, you know, a little similar to the idea that, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was questioning how are we going to get so much food to feed these people if they want to, you know, if you're talking about feeding them uh, meat for, 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 uh, for a month or something, you know, how, how, how are we going to pull that off? You know, it's, it's all these fakists, it's all a basis of a, of a, of a basic um, lack of confidence, a basic lack of, of betochen, of, of really trusting Hashem, uh, that really what, what, it, what it did was it demonstrated where they were holding because they lacked the necessary bitochen and confidence to be able to, uh, to, to even have a desire to go in and to, to follow Hashem into the land that showed that they weren't capable of doing it that they would they, it was too much of a, of, a, of a challenge for them just like when Hashem took them you know, the opposite direction the, the opposite path uh, through the desert in order to avoid uh, wars right away that would turn them off, that would you know, cause them to just you know, give up. So the same thing, psychologically, you have to know where the people are holding. And if they're not able to handle it, so then you know, there's no, no point in trying to bring them into a situation where they can't, which they can't handle. Because they're just going to get defeated anyway, just out of their own uh, uh, defeatist uh, psychology. Okay, so so that's basically the point that I want to bring out here is that there's, a, and it's, I think, as I say, reiterate once again, it's an extremely important issue today where there's such an emphasis on uh, observation-based uh, learning and observation-based um, understandings of things uh, and, and, you know, basing whole philosophies on just the phenomenon of observation as opposed to, as opposed to belief um, is, is a very, very, very serious limitations and, and uh, uh, very big uh, dangers of, uh, of failure, a very serious failure and serious, you know, mental instability, breakdowns, depression. All these things are coming from that lack of, of belief and lack of belief in believing that we're faced with today. So I, I think that um, the lesson is very clear, and the fact that we have such a strong um, uh, indication by these the mitzvah of tzitzis and also the mitzvah of the losasiri, which is also mitzvah of the of not going after your thoughts, is that we can't allow ourselves to indulge in negative thoughts and negative uh, um, isms, you know, the belief system, the belief systems, or or um, uh, philosophies that could be you know, so-called ra- rational philosophies if they're based on a lack of belief and a lack of trust and a lack of, of hope and a lack of all of these things that are not scientific but they are belief-oriented um, systems um, they're pretty much doomed to failure because 
life is just not like that. Life is it's, it's, it's a total illusion to think that you can deal with life from a so-called objective, materialistic, uh, um, rational viewpoint and be able to be successful in life. It just doesn't, doesn't happen like that because there's too much in life that we don't understand and there's too much that, that, is, that doesn't conform to those rational things and it doesn't take consideration our own, our own biases and our own uh, subjectivity that just resists any attempts to uh, become truly objective if such objectivity even exists to begin with. Right, so I think that's about enough um, for the subject, even though you can much, obviously go much, much deeper and um, perhaps on another, on another occasion we'll be able to handle some of the other um, implications.